HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This program is brought to you by Chefs Collaborative, a nonprofit with a mission to inspire, educate, and celebrate chefs and food professionals building a better food system. Change menus, change lives. Learn more at chefscollaborative.org. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Welcome to the line here on Heritage Radio. I am happy to welcome my good friend and former co-worker, Diana Dohang, to the show today. Diana is a talented baker. She's the mastermind behind the recipes of the wildly popular Black Seed Bagels. She runs the entire operation of all three locations. She's previously worked at ISA in San Francisco, Mile End Deli, and just a few days ago, she was nominated for a James Beard Award. So we're going to cover all that today on the line. Diana, welcome to the show. Thanks, man. I'm excited. Okay, so let's start off with the James Beard nomination. Where were you when you heard? Uh, How does it feel? It's crazy. I mean, you were nominated, what was it, like three years ago or something now? Yeah, for Rising Star a couple years ago, yeah. And especially when, you know, you're around so many other talented chefs, you're like, wait a minute, what what did I do? do to even deserve this i'm just trying to you know do my everyday life and um i was literally walking to the bank to make a deposit for black seed glamorous so glamorous and also i start getting texts from our old pr uh, lady uh, kate burr and she just was like congrats i'm like uh congrats for making a deposit at the <laughs> bank i'm not what did i do today <laughs> and i was like uh what are you talking about and she's like uh, you don't know and i was just like what do you again what are you talking about who is this because i actually even have her number saved it was like a random number and she texts me the link and automatically i'm literally on like first avenue and 10th street and i click on the link and then i see my name and automatically i just start like literally bawling because you know i'm not my aspirations aren't to be this tv chef and you know there's certain things that i don't give a crap about as far as you know the food world but the james beard thing is that's like the chef's award you know what i mean that's one award that as a chef you're just like 
that's a lifetime achievement to even be nominated. I don't even care about winning. I already feel like winning. You know? It's a it's a massive congratulations from your peers. Yeah, that exactly. the hard work that you have put in uh, is now coming up for you yeah. know acclaim for review, basically. Yeah. Um, so when you found out and you stopped bawling, uh, <laughs> did you kind of think about how this is? Uh, sort of like a culmination of of everything you've been working on at Black Seed, or did it make you kind of doubt yourself more? I ask that because uh, for me personally, when I saw it, it actually made me kind of uneasy in the sense that like I didn't feel ready to be in that company yet. Uh, but you've been baking a really long time, and you've been running Black Seed now for a couple years. So how did it actually make you feel from a a professional perspective? Well. I mean, automatically, the minute I heard, I I definitely had, you know, one of those weird movie montages where I was, like, flashing back to, you know, the commissary at President Street, culinary school, uh, working the line with, like, Noah, and, you know, then kind of just fading up to now and just thinking about how many hours I've put in in the kitchen, and I, I still don't think... I deserve it. You know what I mean? I, yeah, I've been baking for a long time, but not really compared to a lot of other bakers. It's really only been maybe seven, eight years most. And so I definitely feel the pressure of like, oh man, like now I have to step up my game and keep stepping up my game because obviously, you know, the James Beard is something that you can continuously get nominated for. And once I also saw the competition, you know, I I was just blown away that they even knew who I was, you know. Um, so it's, it was definitely a little bit of both, you know, not understanding how I even got nominated, but also wanting to step up my game even more. Even it's It's only been two days since I got the news, but even in these two days, you know, not only myself, but it's amazing to see the restaurant, you know, all the different locations really step it up because, you know, once I got this award, I emailed the employees and it's just like, it's not, yes, it's my name, but it's not me. It's all of Black Seed. It's my employees. that Sure. It's the company to a certain extent under a Absolutely. bigger microscope now. Mm-hmm. Uh, there were quite a few things in your, what you just said that I want to unpack a little bit and we'll kind of go back and touch on all of them. You said the President Street location. You and I know about that, but we'll talk about that in a little while. That was Mile End's commissary kitchen, sort of in this weird back warehouse. So I definitely want to talk about that. And I also want to talk about you on the line at Mile End, but I still want to stay for a little while at Black Seed. Mm-hmm. Uh, the first location is at Elizabeth and Kenmare, correct? Mm-hmm. And... When I was at Mile End and you were there, I would swing by and I would be in the raw space with you. But I want to hear from you. What does it feel like to be a part of a complete build out and the launching of an actual brand? Some restaurants are are simply a restaurant. Black Seed is different. It's an actual brand. Uh, It's a bagel shop in New York. Mm Mm-hmm perhaps the most competitive bagel market you could ever enter into. So what do those early days feel like when you're kind of conceptualizing the idea of Black Seed with Noah and Joel and Matt and others that are involved in that process? Yeah, I mean, I, I think one, what you said earlier, being a bagel shop in New York City, that is definitely the the most difficult. It's not like we're bringing something completely new where there's no other shops, no comparison. So that alone was a lot of pressure to try to compete with these long existing bagel shops that are, you know, world known. And obviously when you first open something, you, you know, you, you don't know if 
there's going to be even one person at the door, let alone having a huge line that, you know, we're, we're notorious for now. And I think it's a lot of hard work and it's a lot of pressure, uh, but you just have to keep the faith and also really focus. I think being in New York City, you really have to focus on being a particular uh, niche, um, you know, especially when you're dealing with pastries because, you know, right next door, there's a donut shop. Right next door, there's a cake shop. So it's really understanding what your specialty is and becoming the master at it, you know. So we really focus when we first open on the bagels itself. You know, yes, there's obviously salads and, and spreads, but we really, really, really focus majority of our energy on making that bagel recipe. Uh Let's dive deep into that actual process. I mm-hmm. mean, for those out there that are listening that don't specifically know Black Seed Bagels is a phenomenon. There are yeah. lines out the door. It's been busy from the first day at the first location. And as, you, as it has expanded into multiple locations, it hasn't dissipated. The right. other locations have been busy as well. 50,000 Instagram followers, which is pretty crazy for it's any insane. any restaurant yeah. but it's these beautiful pictures of bagels split in half and they're actually beautifully composed and really <laughs> actually artistic but so the actual recipe let's jump into that yeah. what makes a black seed bagel different than say an einstein's bagel or <laughs> an essa bagel or um yeah what what makes it a montreal new york hybrid if i'm even describing it properly as such yeah matt cleveland will definitely find it important to say that the new york part because he (laughs) hates that everybody thinks we're a montreal bagel right but you know i think um one the wood oven is definitely i tell everybody you know i I taught a class last night and i was kind of emphasizing that working in a wood oven as a baker is it takes a lot of skill set and also just the hand rolled aspect that we're still doing at this old school way instead of just popping in the typical convection oven and walking away it takes so much more skill set to work in a wood oven so that's definitely the um the montreal aspect but you know the new york aspect is it's not as dense as a montreal bagel we try to keep it a little bit on the the i guess for lack of a better word the fluffier side so you get a nice crisp outside in the middle is nice and fluffy um as opposed to montreal which is a little bit more pretzely but, you know, it, it really is the cooking method is Montreal and the dough is definitely more New York. So the bagels, they get boiled first mm-hmm. and then baked? Yeah. So I was telling the class last night, actually, that, you know, a lot of people um, tend to skip the boiling part. And in my opinion, that's not a bagel. If, if it's not getting boiled, it doesn't create that chewy texture. There's a lot of places that do use um, dough conditioners to kind of create that chewiness. And then just bake them in a convection mm-hmm. oven? Right, exactly. Okay. So most like, you know, like places like lenders and things like that that mm-hmm. are really mass manufacturing put these chemicals in there, um, for lack of a better word, to create that chewiness. But at Black Sea, we use honey, um, which is a very expensive product in the water and in the dough. Um, and that's kind of also a key aspect to um, the taste profile of our bagel. Is there any lye involved in the bagels? No. So, um, you know, the old school method is definitely using lye, but we just found that it's a little more difficult to source. Mm-hmm. And we just kind of wanted to keep it in that Montreal aspect. It can also be honey. dangerous, right? Yeah, like You really exactly. have to know what you're doing when you're working with lye. Yeah. I'm not exactly sure specifically what the process is. I You would obviously know better, but right. you add it to the water in order mm-hmm. to to what? What's the process yeah, yeah. of so the lye? It, it's, it's pretty much similar to um, what the honey and also some people use malt syrup and baking soda. Um, it just creates kind of uh, that 
outer texture where it caramelizes um, the outside of the bagel a little bit more and it gives it that crispy outside because it kind of creates a natural sugar. Do you guys use wood in the ovens or is there yeah. gas? Or um, So in New York City, any new restaurants has to be gas assist um, if you are doing a wood oven. Obviously, if we didn't have that law in place, we probably would go straight wood. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, so it's half and half and we kind of used a, a mixed wood. In the beginning, we were playing around with using really specific wood like hickory and things like that. But it's not like smoking a pig. It's not in there for like 12 hours. So it didn't make it um, make sense cost-wise to use a specific It wood. didn't impart that smell to yeah. the bagel. So it's useless to have a specific smelling type of wood, right? Exactly. exactly. And uh, one of the... One of the things I think that also separates Black Seed from other bagel shops is that you can see the baking happening mm-hmm. and that you can walk in and you can see the fire and you see these long, I don't know how to describe them. They're planks. Bagel peels. Yeah, bagel peels. Oh, they're bagel peels. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, do you get those manufactured? Where do those come from? Yeah, um, I actually have a woodworking friend, of course, in Brooklyn and Greenpoint. That, that makes them. It's such you a You have a friend Brooklyn in thing. Greenpoint who yeah. is a woodworker? Go, go figure. <laughs> His name is Jesus. <laughs> And he, so he fabricates those for you? Yeah, exactly. And what are they like for those that have never been and they can't really visualize it? Yeah. They're long. Yeah, yeah. They're, they're super long. Um, they're almost, the, the, it's like the idea of a pizza peel, but instead of it being a pizza shape, it's kind of more, um, you know, a four by one uh, length. So uh, we should... We can give a lot of credit to the the founders of Blackseed, right. Noah, the founder of Mile End, mm-hmm. uh, Matt, the the Smile. There's mm-hmm. a wonderful story about them coming together that's been definitely reported on. But I want to talk about obviously you, since okay. you're here, <laughs> you being sort of the heart and soul of that first Elizabeth location. How did you uh, come up with the various flavor profiles that you use in the bagels how did you decide on what flavors of bagels you would have and then i'm also really curious about in the beginning how did you decide how many bagels you were going to make a day because bagels are something they they take a while it's a long process baking you can't just uh throw a couple more in the oven right so how did you figure out prior to opening uh, all the logistics of opening up a bagel shop. You had never worked at a bagel shop before. Right. And no one, Matt, had never owned a bagel shop. So uh, talk a little bit about the kind of conceptualization process and like the logistics of it. Right. So when you first open, like I said, you don't even know if one person's going to walk in the door. So it really is a guessing game. And in the beginning, we were not expecting this crazy line. In the, in the very beginning, we were actually just trying to be very similar to Rust and Daughters and just be a, a fish and cream cheese shop. Um, at that time, too, I was making our own cream cheese because, you know, we wanted to do everything from scratch. But once we saw this huge line, we would literally run out at one o'clock and be and, and, and kind of just keep apologizing to people like come back the next day. So trying to figure out your pars or, or how many um, for those of the you that don't know what pars are how many you're gonna bake off that day was really a guessing game you know we would we would guess like oh a thousand's good and then next day we're like uh maybe we should bring that to a thousand five hundred and then eventually you know with the cream cheese thing i was just like i need a whole factory to make this own cream cheese so you know we were smart about it and we're like okay let's really think about why people are coming so let's focus on the bagels and not do everything from scratch what's the quantity that you're baking now at, at a at a single location or even yeah. if you if the number is per day throughout yeah. the locations do you know what it is yeah yeah so um almost every location we do about you know two that 
I mean, 2000 is a really rough estimate. Obviously, on Mondays, we're not going to be as busy as Saturdays. Right. So, but on average, we do 2000 because we do do some wholesale to our sister restaurants and, and things like that. So these days, mm-hmm. are you still flipping the peel or have you <laughs> moved on to other things? Uh, If you can talk a little bit about Rob and if there's other people involved in the process, uh, I also want you to speak a little bit about the transition from Mm -hmm. kind of the first six months at Elizabeth when things were, I hope, a little bit different than they are now uh, with perhaps a little bit better work-life balance. Yeah, um, things have definitely changed for me in these three years. You know, I think it'd be insane for me to be expected to, because now that we have three locations, two full-fledged ones that are baking, it'd be insane for me to be expected to work a, a particular station, whether it's on the line or baking. So luckily I have amazing, amazing, talented bakers and sandwich makers and register um, people, because I think the thing that is different about my job is, you know, most restaurants have a breakdown of one person's in charge of front of the house, one person's in charge of the back of the house. And it wasn't like that for me, um, which is great because I am kind of a control freak. Um, you know, Matt and Noah knew my background and they wanted to really have a small operation as far as who's running it. So they expected me to do both aspects, front of the house and back of the house, which at first it was fine once we had one location. And then once we expanded, you know, I really had to rely on Rob, who's been with me since day one. He helped me create the recipe um, to really help me keep the quality of the food and the baking um, going. And now bringing it to today, I definitely do a lot of more quality control, helping create new recipes. Um, every once in a while, I'll still have to obviously fill in if they're really shorthanded. But, you know, I, I real, feel really fortunate I have great people um, to, to help me execute these things. Are you baking 24 hours a day at any of the locations? Almost 24 hours at, at um, First Avenue. It's coming close to 24 hours. But, um, you know, the labor is the biggest thing that you need to watch as far as the business goes. So we're probably not baking maybe for five hours out of the day, you know. Still so, a lot of baking. Yeah, it's a lot of that's baking. That's going on. A lot of baking and a lot of hand rolling. Yeah. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about how you got started and how you first got involved in food. Stick with us here on the line on Heritage Radio. This program is brought to you by Chefs Collaborative, a national nonprofit network with a mission to inspire, educate, and celebrate chefs and food professionals building a better food system. Chefs Collaborative members work to make sustainable practices second nature for every chef in the United States. Chefs Collaborative was founded in 1993 by visionary chefs, including Rick Bayless and Alice Waters, who acknowledged the influential role of food professionals on our food choices, our collective personal health, the vitality of cultures, and the integrity of the global environment. Chefs Collaborative believes that the greater culinary community can be a catalyst for positive change by expanding the market for good food and helping to preserve local farming and fishing communities. Change menus, change lives. Learn more about Chefs Collaborative at chefscollaborative.org. (laughs) 
Welcome back to the line here on Heritage Radio. My guest today, Diana, is a close friend of mine. She is the woman in charge of Black Seed Bagels with three locations across New York City. She was just recently nominated for a James Beard Award for Outstanding Baker. Uh, Diana, I want to jump back to the early start of your life. You're first generation Thai American, and you uh, grew up in Florida before you moved to New York, right? Right. I'm curious how your family ended up in Florida. And uh, where are your um, where are your parents these days? Yeah. And yeah, so um, my mom was originally on a refugee camp. She's Laotian. So um, back in the day, there was obviously a huge communist regime uh, that was going on in Laos. So she kind of swam the Mekong River with my sister at the time, and then met my father on the refugee camp. And at this refugee camp, um, there was this Christian coalition that was based in America. And in the early 80s, it, it was a huge thing bringing um, Southeast Asian immigrants over to America. There, I mean, if you just look at the, the history, um, that's like when a, a huge uh, migration happened for Southeast Asians. So then um, they came. We actually, I was actually born in Ohio and lived there until I was five. Then, you know, t- typical immigrant um, story, there's factory work in Florida. There's actually a, a huge uh, Laotian population there. So my father ended up moving there, and then we followed right after him. Um, then I just grew up in Florida, had a good life. What's, the, uh, what's it like growing up in Florida um, as with parents that have recently immigrated to the United States? Were you always kind of isolated? Were you always trying to really integrate yourself? Were you like a super duper normal American kid? <laughs> what was your house life like? Oh man, it was definitely confusing because where we grew up, it, it, it was central Florida. It, it was the particular school I went to. It was very Caucasian. I think it was like only my brother um, and my sister and maybe one other Asian family that were the only Asians. And, um, you know, since we were still first generation, my parents were still extremely hardcore Laotian and Thai. So anytime I would bring my family over or my friends over for dinner, they would be so confused about like, what, why is there a whole fried fish and like these weird soups? But now looking at it, I'm so thankful because even though my mom had three jobs, she would still cook everything from scratch. It was literally, she'd wake up at 2 a.m., start start her stock to make like you know her pho for the next day it, it was crazy i really learned a lot of my cooking skill set from my from my mom because that was really important for her to continue to teach me um like laotian and thai food um as far as that goes you're totally removed professionally from that flavor profile <laughs> but is that ever something that you go back and and cook at home or is there like a restaurant in new york that kind of reminds you of your mom's cooking like how do you how do you grasp back onto that feeling that you're looking for? Yeah, I, I honestly definitely, now that I have more time, I, I probably cook five days out of the week. My boyfriend is a very lucky man. Yeah, totally. <laughs> Free bagels, tons of dinners. Um, yeah, because I do, you know, once I have children, I do find it very important to, to pass on that, that cultural aspect to them. Um, but as far as, you know, a Thai restaurant, you know, there, there's obviously some great legit places. But the way my mom cooked, it was never 
typical dishes. It was just flavor profiles of, of Thailand and of Laos that she would just whip together, you know, because living in Florida, it's not similar ingredient necessarily, but there's things that taste very similar that she would utilize. Like what's an example of that? What's a spice or flavor or fruit or something that she would incorporate from Florida into a... <laughs> well, she would actually grow a lot of um, the, the products. So she would grow her own lemongrass. Um, she would grow her own ginger. It, it was really interesting having a mother that was so into food, even though she wasn't like a foodie. She was just into food because it saved money to actually grow your own products. Because that's what people used to do. They, yeah, used to cook, exactly. they used to cook dinner for themselves. Yeah. Such a novel concept. No, but a lot of times she would take like American dishes and put, you know, she would make spaghetti, for instance, but put fish sauce in it and MSG in it. <laughs> Delicious. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Nothing yeah. wrong with that. No, it, it was like equivalent of putting like anchovies in it, you know? Yeah. <laughs> so after you went to school in Florida and then you made your way up to New York, but you were working in advertising. Right. And I always loved this about you because when I started working with you at Mile End, I came from an advertising background mm-hmm. and I didn't really know what I was doing coming right. to New York to start cooking. And when I found out that you had done it as well, <laughs> it made me kind of relieved that people had made this transition before. Right. Um, so what made you leave advertising to get into cooking um, and and was Mile End your first cooking job, or did you do something before that? How did you make that flip? Right. So um, I originally was in advertising for strategy, and I got pigeon held into doing super luxury brands, which I didn't even care for or even had aspirations to purchase, and eventually just ate my soul alive. And, you know, people think you make a bunch of money in advertising. You make decent money, but not as much for how much hours and effort you put into it. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, my father always said, don't ever chase a job for the money. Um, if you just do what you're passionate about, the money will chase you. Obviously, he said it in Thai in a very Buddhist monk way. But, <laughs> <laughs> but you know, and that I... That still and, sounded profound, don't worry. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, you know, and I was like four years into advertising. I was like, okay, I got to really make the decision. I'm, I'm really unhappy. I was literally picked up cigarette smoking just so I could leave the office and look normal. That's like how miserable. And I hate cigarettes. Like, I really hate cigarettes. And... um So then, you know, I didn't go into cooking right away or go to culinary school right away. I kind of took a small hiatus and, you know, just took a serving job just to make the bills until I figured out what I wanted to do. Um, One day I was just walking down Broadway and I was like, you know what, let's go into French culinary and just see, you know, what they have to offer, how much tuition is. Um, which I'm still paying for. <laughs> but then I was just like, you yeah, know, let's, let's, let's just do this. Let's see what happens. And I had a supportive brother who helped, um, you know, fund the education. And I kind of got out of school and I had a friend that was living above Mile End before it was even open. The Borum in Borum yeah, Hill. Yeah, yeah. Justin mm-hmm. Razzo lives uh, right above there. And he was like, hey, this place is hiring. As I literally just finished. I think it was like a week out of culinary school. And I met Noah. And actually, at the time, he didn't hire me right away because he's like, uh, I don't even know if I need anybody. I'll let you know in a couple weeks. And when he first hired me, he actually hired me part-time server, part-time line. And then once he was like, okay, this girl actually knows what she's doing, he eventually um, put me on the line. You hold a tremendous culinary distinction, which I think you know, but I'm not 100% sure if you remember. So confirmed by David Sachs, the writer of <laughs> Save the Deli. You are the first female meat slicer in New York City deli history. Correct. There have been delis in New York for 70 years since 
New, since Jews came to New York and <laughs> Germans came to New York, there have been delis, and it wasn't until uh, what year? Two thousand and eleven, two thousand and ten, that you yeah. started working at Mile End. Uh, so that says. First off, that the people who started Mile End are really cool, and that they are progressive, and that they had different ideas about Delhi. But it also says something about culture and restaurant culture Mm -hmm. and the idolization of chefs, which is that uh, it is still a Mm male-driven, male-focused culture. Right. Uh, How did it feel to be a woman working in the kitchen? Did it... Did it mean anything to you personally, or was it just a job? Um, and how is that, has that shaped any way that you've thought about food as you've continued your career and now you're in a leadership role? Right. I mean, obviously, at first, you know, luckily, I have the humor of a 13-year-old boy, as you know, Eli. <laughs> um, so I think that helps out a lot, just to have a really good, um, good humor, because there is a lot of dude humor on the line. But, you know, the one thing that I, I've really thought about is that I, as a female cook, you shouldn't change the good female um, aspects. You know, I, I pride that I wear my heart on my sleeve. I, I pride that I'm more maternal than angry. Um, and I think it's a wrong way to feel like you need to change your character um, especially the female character, like who says crying is a bad thing, right? So I, I really pride myself in um, being a, a female chef leader and not trying to, you know, change my attitude just to be more male. I am very nurturing when it comes to people making mistakes. I don't yell. I really pull them aside and try to teach them um, instead of being so hot-headed, you know. Let's continue on this path and talk a little bit about leadership style and uh after you well you uh you worked at myelin for a while and Mm -hmm. i'd love to know what that kind of if there were mentors there but then you moved on to isa where you Mm -hmm. took on a sous chef role which would have been sort of a a more traditional kitchen Mm -hmm. environment than myelin uh what did that change mean to you for your career to go work at a different place and what did you learn from that experience yeah so that is actually when i worked at isa in the very beginning that is when i did feel the female versus male thing because obviously when i started at mile end it's an extremely small crew at the time it was only like myself and noah and maybe two other chefs on the line which jay um, yeah jay chan Chan from fancy nancy yeah always tell him he really did put so much effort into teaching me and, and giving me the courage to be like, look, you can't keep, cause, um, when I went to culinary school, I only went for pastry. Okay. So I didn't really have any savory experience. And then Jay Chan was like, you can, you know, slice meat. It's fine. I won't tell you any of the things he told me cause I don't think they're appropriate for air, but <laughs> he really was my sensei as far as like savory cooking goes. Um, but then, you know, when I went transitioned to ESA, that was very difficult because I had to prove myself more than I had to prove myself at mile end. Um, you know, automatically, since I came on as a, uh, as a sous chef and I had people to manage, I, I think for the first two months, none of the line cooks would talk to me or anytime I would expedite, I could t- definitely tell they were dragging on purpose, you know, just to see how I would take it. Um, as the months went on and as I proved myself, and I, I proved myself by working longer hours, by going on the line, by kind of being the the people's manager in a way, you know, not just demanding and barking things, but showing like, look, we're a team. We're not 
I'm not trying to just be your boss, you know. So I think that was a, a extremely tough transition, actually. I, there were moments that I would go home crying because I'm like, I don't know if I can do this because nobody's listening to me. Then eventually everybody gained respect for me. It's a very hard thing to do to come into a place that's established mm-hmm. and be elevated into a higher role. Uh, it happens all the time in, in the corporate world, but mm-hmm. in restaurants, it's not as ordinary. Usually you you, you start out as a line cook and then right. you kind of work your way up as people leave. Right. Uh, how long did you stay at ISA for? And after you left ISA, is that how black seed started to happen? Is that the time mm-hmm. frame? Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, so I mainly left ISA because, you know, hurricane Sally. And I also just wanted to get more experience, um, under my belt. So then, um, I was at ISA, I think for almost a year, it was a little under a year because, uh, Noah approached me with this great opportunity. Black Seed at the time was still not a brick and mortar yet. They got the location. They're still trying to figure out, um, the build out. And he was just like, Hey, I really want you to at least start experimenting. And I think this was maybe seven months before it even opened. Um, he's like, in the meantime, why don't you work at the commissary? kind of help us with the catering aspect of things. And in the seven months, just take your time and, and experiment. And he's like, I don't want to rush this. He's like, it was really important for him and Matt to get the perfect bagel. Cause I, like, you know, like you said earlier, we're in New York city, you know, is there a specific person that you lean on besides your black seed guys that you ask advice for in the restaurant community? Like, how do you, uh, how do you find perspective on what's going on at work, right. not just by going to the people that you see most days at, at Black Seed? Yeah, I mean, I, luckily I have amazing, amazing friends that are all in the industry. Um, obviously, I always refer to, to Noah and Matt because they just have a wealth of knowledge as far as the business thing goes. But as far as any like recipes or things like that, I do, I do reach out to like the old chefs that I used to work with um, just to get their, their knowledge and to kind of help me problem solve. So I think that's the cool thing about being in this industry is that no matter how many years pass, for some reason, you still keep contact with, you know, I, I still talk to Rich Maggi and he opens up a shop in Maine. We still like, and I, and I think I haven't seen him in probably like six years or something, you know. Yeah, it's cool that you brought up Rich because I wanted to jump back to the President Street <laughs> location where so many cool, talented, amazing people were working all together. You have seen uh, Mile End grow through all its incarnations. Mm -hmm. Uh, You were there through the storm. Joel, one of the partners, used to actually drive bagels down from Montreal, (laughs) and now you make those (laughs) bagels for Mile End. Uh I'm curious, uh, is there a specific time uh, of your involvement that was extremely special to you? It doesn't necessarily need to be the hardest or the easiest moment, but is there a time that really you know, a lot of your professional career has been right. defined by working there. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, I definitely think that that working at the commissary at both President Street and Red Hook was just an amazing experience. Um, one, you know, no, obviously no offense to people that visit, but not having to deal with customers and really having to get a chance to focus on your food and that's it is the most amazing experience a chef could ever have because, you know, there is pressure when customers are around and complaining and you obviously want to make everybody happy. But when you really get to just focus and be around your, your comrades and, and, you know, it, it was specifically at the President Street location. There's so many talented cooks that we both worked with that 
probably taught us so much. It was Tons. insane. Yeah. It's like every, pretty much everybody there now runs something, something yeah. in so New true. York City. It's like eight people and every single one of them now yeah. runs Jimmy at Russ kitchen. and Daughters. Yep. Yeah, Jimmy it's... runs Russ and Daughters. Jared is at hometown. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Rich has his place in Maine. Yeah, I mean, it's a it's huge amazing. list of incredible people. Matt is with the Meat Hook yeah. guys. And obviously, you're still crushing it over <laughs> at Black Seed. Yeah. So what are... What are future plans for you and for Black Seed? There's, mm-hmm. there's three locations. There's a uh, World Trade Center location, mm-hmm. uh, First Ave, mm-hmm. and Elizabeth. And they're all a little bit different right. than each other. Mm-hmm. Uh, I guess First Ave is the more kind of full-service one. It has right. a more seating. Um, are there any plans that you can share with the listeners about what's going on with the, your future and the future of Black Seed? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm probably... Knock on wood, probably always going to be part of Black Seed. Um, it's the one restaurant that, you know, I really put everything into. But we definitely have plans on expanding to the West Coast, um, probably L.A. You know, we, we've been kind of looking at some real estate out there. Um, but, you know, we, we always want to expand and, and take a good product to other places of the U.S. Um, you know, we'll eventually come out to Brooklyn probably. But we really are just focusing on the three locations right now. But you know, I think in a couple of years, we're, we're definitely going to have a lot more locations. You can get them at the Mile End in Borum Hill? or Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. So there is a little bit of like a Brooklyn yeah, outpost. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I'm curious also, they, they sell in Whole Foods or there was a Whole um, Foods? There was a Whole Foods, but we kind of stopped at that just because... Um, you know, n- not a knock to, to Whole Foods, but they weren't really uh, presenting our, our product properly. Mm-hmm. So we, which is really of, important. I mean, you want to have brand important. control, right? Exactly, it's extremely important. And, and at first, they're a good um, partner to work with, but maybe eventually we'll we're going to loop back around and kind of do a different because the way they were selling it was selling them like it was their own product, you know what I mean? And mm-hmm. I think we really need to focus on packaging as far as that goes. A lot of people that listen to the program and that listen to Heritage Radio are obviously in in, in the industry. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of people that are young cooks and perhaps front of house trying to make that transition to back of house. I'm curious what kind of advice you'd have to someone who's starting out and has aspirations one day of doing what you've done, which is pretty much launching an entire company uh, where you are the developer of those recipes and now you're still there on the ground running it. What kind of advice do you have someone since you've had such kind of tremendous staying power? Right. Um, I think one of the advice is there's going to be haters no matter what you do. You know, everybody's going to have opinion, especially since it's food. You just really have to focus and, and believe in your product and stand behind it and always keep the quality up. Uh, you cannot let those those haters um, bring you down. If anything, anytime I hear anything bad about Black Seed, it actually drives me uh, even harder to, to be better, you know. Diana, thank you so much for joining us. We wish you the best of luck in the James Beard Awards. They are coming up in a couple months, Mm -hmm. and everyone needs to go check out Black Sea Bagels, whether you live in New York or you're coming to visit. Uh, They're super delicious. There's three locations, one on Elizabeth, one on First Ave, and one at the World Trade Center. Uh, You'll have to come back and when you expand to the West Coast, we'll yeah, talk about sure. we'll talk about that expansion plans. <laughs> Everyone, join us every single Tuesday here on Heritage Radio for the line.
Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.